Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Moving right along, this version uh, of Ask Dr. Dawn, well, we're going to have some interesting stuff. We're going to talk about cilia on nerve cells. Who knew that your nerve cells had cilia? I certainly didn't. We're also going to introduce a new weekly feature called Gene of the Week. Uh, We're going to call out the state of Florida for weaponizing pseudoscience and also the food industry regulators for allowing real Trojan horse shenanigans on cage-free organic eggs. And of course, we'll have your emails and questions. Let's get started. Cilia on nerve cells. Well, this is a historically overlooked thing. We're going to call these rod-like projections that are actually on just about every cell type in the human body. But just like that junk DNA up until a few years ago, we haven't known what to do about them or what they're for, and so we've just kind of ignored them. Well, it turns out that cilia on the brain, on neurons, has a really key uh, role in making sure that the receptors work. This research done at the Ohio State University College of Medicine showed that nerve cell cilia are important for dopamine receptor 1 signaling. And DR1, the dopamine receptor, is part of the reward pathway. And of course, that makes it part of the addiction pathway, as well as part of the motivation pathway, some rather important pathways in getting by in life. And there are a bunch of quote-unquote ciliopathies, diseases of cilia caused by dysfunctional cilia, and probably many more that we don't know about. Uh, But the ones that we do know about are, we know about them because they're so damn bad. So for example, there's one called Bardet-Beetle syndrome, and you get multiple organ system defects, bad heart, bad liver. You get adult blindness that doesn't show up until adulthood, obesity, and intellectual disabilities. And it's not on, it's it's not easy to find or easy to test. Uh, this group at Ohio State was specifically trying to understand this ciliopathy. And these are little tiny hair-like projections, much, much smaller than dendrites, that come off of each neuronal cell body. And there's a few of them you might know about, Cilia in the in the olfactory system of the nose are what give us our sense of smell. That's where the chemicals that we smell actually stimulate the neuron. And there is a lot of interesting research going on on doing computer noses or fake noses, but they've run into a real problem because the cilia are actually so small that they can examine the molecular structure of the chemical that's causing uh, the odor. And it turns out that there are way more different structures that we can smell than neurons that we've got or receptors that we've got. So the cilia are kind of a Swiss Army knife sensor. Intriguing. The outer parts of photoreceptors, which are your rods and your cones, also require functional cilia. cilia. And you know, it's a little bit like the arm, right? You've got the bat wing, you've got the little tiny whale arms, and the dog's legs. And all of these, uh, front legs anyway, are the same structure originally, you know, evolutionarily, but they went in drastically different dimensions. And so you can think of this as a microfractal of that, with the cilia being really critical to the ability of the chemicals to bind to the receptors. The, these these protein-coupled receptors, they're called G-protein-coupled receptors, are the largest family of cell surface receptors in mammal and by far the most common family of proteins that we target with drugs. One of those receptors is dopamine receptor 1. And so 
The researchers, of course, use knockout mice because, of course, that would that's what we do when we want to understand something in in mammals. We take the gene out in mice and see what happens to them. Well, in the case of uh, mice who are missing this uh, BBS protein, the receptor accumulates on the neuron cilia and does and doesn't fire off, so it becomes clumped with the cilia. And if you take the cilia away, you got exactly the same outcome. So the and one of the weird things about this is that without that DR1 receptor, the mice got fat. They did they had abnormal appetites. So now we're looking at just one more layer of complexity on cells and it's just curiouser and curiouser said Alice so there's 23andme there's ancestry.com and a host of other products out there they've been around for i think as much as a decade but i routinely ask new patients if they've had their genes done if they have uh, done either of those two because both of those give a raw data output of the uh, of the proteomics, in other words, the coding DNA. So the whole genome gets very, very complicated, but the proteome, the protein coding part of the genome or exome is actually, well, it's about 30,000 genes, although there's more, of course, devil in the details there, which we aren't going into. There are a lot of decoder rings out there now, Prometheus, Genetic Genie, where people can take the raw data and actually learn a lot more than what they hear from the product that they purchased, like 23andMe and Ancestry. These companies are illegal. It's illegal in the United States to take money to give medical advice or to talk about genes in, in a medically relevant way. Uh, that's to prevent the unauthorized practice of medicine and also, of course, uh, you, uh, the promotion of information that may or may not be accurate. It's pretty devastating to find out, for example, that you might have an increased risk of Parkinson's disease or uh, Huntington's disease or Alzheimer's. And so that sort of genetic testing with the medical implications is very, very strictly controlled, as it should be, because you're going to need counseling, potentially, if you're a layperson and find out that you have some of this quote-unquote bad DNA. Now, of course, bad DNA is not destiny, it's probability, and that's an important lesson before I even start talking about genes. However, you can email in your question about a gene that you may have found that you have, and I'll be going through what I consider to be top genes in terms of their importance. And I categorize importance by, can we do anything about this? Do we need to understand this? And so today's gene, uh, as our kickoff, is DIO2. DIO2, not 02, thyroid deiodinase. Now, most doctors use thyroid-stimulating hormone uh, and if that's off, off, they'll check a free T4 to determine whether a person's thyroid is functioning properly. This is, as good as it goes, uh, flawed on two basic premises. Uh, historically, we measure TSH and not T4 because T4 was not accurate and fluctuated a lot. We were measuring this stuff going all the way back to the 1930s when we first began to really, uh, I would say that endocrinology took off in the 1930s the way that genomics and proteomics are taking off now. Just a vast adaptive radiation of knowledge and implications for health and wellness. So along with that was, can we measure the thyroid activity and T4, which is the in the hormone that the thyroid puts out, or at least 90% of what it puts out, seemed like the obvious choice, but it wasn't a good measurement. It was too, it fluctuated too much and there was too broad a quote-unquote normal in healthy patients. Didn't quite make sense. And then the TSH came along and that became the test that I, 30 years ago in medical school, was taught to use and still 
is the test of choice. Although our ability to, our fine tuning on the assay has improved dramatically. And so you can measure the free T4, which is the non-protein bound T4 separately. And that's actually a pretty good indicator of the activity of the thyroid gland. So that's part of the first uh, flawed premise. Uh, The second flawed premise is that the pituitary isn't always capable of producing TSH. So you can have a low TSH and have very low levels of thyroid hormone, not excessive levels of thyroid hormone. And I've seen that mistake made several times uh, in my career where the physician in question was just barking up the wrong tree, working up someone for hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease when this person actually had a primary pituitary problem. So a person called in this week uh, to my office with this very issue. Uh, They had a TSH of 4.7, which is in the normal range, just barely, but high normal, but still normal. But they had lots of thyroid symptoms. They had constipation, fatigue, dry skin, low energy, hair loss, low mood. This sounds like a classic hypothyroid presentation. Also sounds a little bit like chronic inflammatory response syndrome to me, and uh, except for the constipation and the dry skin, I'd be looking for an inflammatory, well, basically a long COVID picture. Of course, we had chronic inflammatory uh, response syndrome for a long time before that. Uh, We just called it different things like yuppie flu or chronic Lyme disease, but it's all the same thing. The immune system is overactive. It's over-inflamed. It's not, the brakes have are not working. And we could get into a whole philosophical discussion about how the how high the TSH has to be for us to consider it low th- thyroid or hypothyroid. And that's an important little quick point for lay people. It's inverse. The higher the TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, the lower the thyroid output because the thyroid isn't responding. Now, Functional medicine doctors would say, oh, the TSH should be between 0.5 and 2.5. That's the optimal range. If you go to a regular lab, they're going to say something like, like Quest would say 4.8, I think. Uh, LabCorp maybe 4.9, although I didn't look it up for this, but it's in that ballpark. Some doctors won't treat until the TSH is greater than 10, and they're kind of dogmatic about that. But most doctors don't pay attention to the second half of the thyroid hormone story, which I'm going to spend a little bit of time on today, and that's the deiotinase half, this gene. So let's walk through the whole thing. The hypothalamus is is the master sensor of the blood. It tests the blood for levels of all the hormones, for levels of uh, everything, including, I might add, toxins. So if you uh, eat the wrong thing, let's say you take Ipecac. Ipecac is toxic. The hypothalamus thinks you've eaten the wrong mushroom and wants you to throw up immediately, and it will induce vomiting. And we use it in poisoning. And if the person hasn't, if, if that person's hypothalamus hasn't figured out they've been poisoned, but the doctor has, we give them Ipecac, they vomit, and hopefully clear the toxin before they can absorb too much of it. Well, the hypothalamus is measuring It's a chemical sensor, and it's looking for T4. Maybe it's using those cilia that we talked about. I really don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me because the chemosensing of the hypothalamus is at least as acute and nuanced as that of the nose. So it's looking for T4. That's to say levothyroxine, the most commonly replaced form of thyroid, and the one that is the storage form. Let's walk through this some more. The hypothalamus measures that the T4 in the system is low. It sends a private direct message to the pituitary in the form of a chemical signal called thyroid-releasing hormone. But fun fact, thyroid-releasing hormone cannot be measured in the bloodstream. It's a private channel. Remember that I said Uh, it's a private DM. It goes directly between the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And it does that by a private uh, blood circulation system between the two that doesn't leak out into the general system. So the pituitary 
gets the message from the hypothalamus and puts a measured amount of TSH in the blood. And then the thyroid gland gets the TSH signal, which it has receptors for, and it responds if it can. If the thyroid is sick and can't respond, the hypothalamus sends another TRH burst to the pituitary. The pituitary sends more TSH into the bloodstream, and the TSH ratchets up until it's literally screaming at the thyroid to make more hormone. And if the thyroid can't respond because it's sick, well then, hypothyroidism. And that high TSH is our clue. The same sort of thing happens with ACTH. That's the one that causes our adrenal glands to release cortisol. And it's and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, which cause, respectively, the gonads to produce uh, eggs and sperm. So 90% of what comes out of the thyroid, because of its being stimulated by TSH, is a storage form, T4, and about 10% is the active form, T3. T3 is immediately going to get into the cell and go to the nucleus and do stuff. And if you released all of it at once, you'd make the person hyperthyroid for part of the day and hypothyroid for the rest of the day. So you need a buffer, and that's what T4 is. It's the buffer storage form. The depot, the, the reserve tank, if you will. And that T4 circulates, and it's taken up by many different kinds, most different kinds of cells, muscle cells, cartilage cells, bone marrow, uh, and many, many, many others. And it's converted using DIO to this gene that we're talking about, diiodinase. It's It's converted using that gene, which is basically the blueprint, DIO2 is the blueprint for the gene. If that blueprint is flawed, then the enzyme that you make with the flawed blueprint doesn't work as well. You have a harder time converting the T4 to the T3. And you have the other kind of hypothyroidism, which debatably is more common than the first kind, the kind that the doctors are always thinking about. I mentioned that T3 goes to the nucleus. It actually enters the cell goes into the nucleus, and there it attaches to another molecule called, uh, or set of molecules called coactivators and forms a new T3 coactivator molecule. This molecule fits on the promoter region of DNA in various places, and it turns on, depending on which s- tissue you're in, and that's why you have to have the coactivators because they identify the tissue that you're in. I'm a muscle cell coactivator. I'm a neuronal coactivator. And that way, the T3 is guided to the right place on the DNA, turns on the correct promoter region, and various pieces of DNA start being transcribed and turned into RNA, which then goes out into the protein factory part of the cell outside the nucleus, and you begin the production of proteins. Now, in chondrocytes, this protein builds new bone. And that's great. In muscle cells, T3 turns on the production of GLUT2, which is the the gene for insulin receptors. So it lowers blood sugar levels by allowing the muscle cells to take up more sugar and helps prevent muscle wasting, also a feature of hypothyroidism. Now, if paradoxically, If the levels of T4 get too high, it turns off tissue uh, deiodinase, and people can get accelerated net bone loss from turning off their chondrocytes. So now they're breaking down bone faster than they're building it. In brain cells, T3 improves alertness and modulates mood. So uh, if you don't have enough T3, you may have uh, subjective fatigue, the the kind of fatigue that we see with uh, depression, which also includes apathy. So, you know, diodinase is a pretty important gene to have working. And there's a very relatively common mutation in this where a single cytosine substitutes for a thymidine at position number 92. And I can never remember which end we're starting at on the DNA with those. But if I need to know, I just go look it up. Uh, now, if you have 
two copies of a cytosine, so you've got two bad copies. Remember, you've got two copies of every gene, and these DNA tests look at both of your chromosomes. So you may be homozygous to good copies, homozygous to bad copies, or heterozygous, one good copy and one bad copy. And in heterozygosity, you lose at least 30% of the activity most of the time. Although sometimes you're 30% faster, which can be just as bad because it throws off the balance of all of these interlocking parts that make up physiology. People with two CC copies of diiodinase have an increase of high risk for diabetes. Uh, they also have an increased risk for osteoarthritis because they don't lay down cartilage properly in the first place. Osteoporosis because they don't lay down cartilage fast enough during the bone breakdown process and bone rebuilding process and higher levels of brain inflammation. But and this is the key point about DNA. It's not destiny, it's information. So if you have this mutation, you want to be sure to get enough zinc, get enough iodine, and get enough selenium, because all of these are cofactors. And if you take extra, you can't necessarily goose the defective enzyme all the way up to normal, but you can definitely get it functioning at its greatest potential capacity by making sure that these cofactors are around. And very important to know, uh, the United States is geologically low in iodine, particularly the Midwest. So in the early 20th century, there was epidemic goiter in the United States. And, and so they started iodizing the salt. They estimated how much salt, uh, how much iodine it would take to prevent goiter. That's 150 micrograms. And that's what they put in, in the salt. They, they estimated how much salt are people using, and they put it in, the average salt consumption then was actually higher because people use salt as a meat preservative. And that's how much iodine they put in the salt enough so that the average dose per day would contain 150 micrograms. But most of us, or many of us anyway, are doing healthy sea salt, right? We're not buying the uh, the little girl with the yellow umbrella anymore. We're buying something with a fish or a you know, picture of a Mediterranean sunset on it, or maybe it's pink Himalayan sea salt. But the point is, those are actually can be quite low in iodine. So if it's not enriched with iodine, and you have this DNA, you probably want to add iodine. How much? Well, more than 150 micrograms. We're not trying to prevent a goiter here. We're trying to goose an enzyme. Up to about three milligrams a day is safe. I've seen certain, uh, you know, certain naturopaths and other people in that in the functional medicine world will use as much as 12 milligrams a day. And back in the 20s and 30s, people were routinely giving doses of 20 or 30 milligrams. Uh, but sometimes that shuts down the thyroid. Remember what I said about too much T4? Well, with hormones, too much of a good thing, definitely bad. And you can actually shut down the thing you're trying to goose. So keep it at three milligrams or below. Uh, the Japanese, who eat a lot of sea, uh, seaweed, will typically, typically have uh, a, di- a diet daily dietary component of about three to five milligrams, and they do fine. Uh, You also need zinc. Some people have a real problem getting enough zinc. Have your doctor check your red blood cell zinc. It's cheap test, and so even if your HMO won't cover it, you can buy it yourself from one of the online labs, and they'll give you a form that you take into the local uh, the local labs, they've got a you know bulk price deal contract, and so they're just a middleman selling their discount to you and letting you order your own lab tests, which I think people should be able to do. Uh, even though I'm a member of the guild, I still think that there's plenty of opportunity for letting people who want to self-hack or to work on their system. I you know, I, I feel that they should be free to do so, but I want to provide them with good information. Anyway, red blood cell zinc, if it's low, you want to be in the upper uh, quartile, the upper 75% of the reference range if you have 
even one of the two of this mutation, and especially if you have two copies. So take about 30 milligrams a day. Make sure you get two or three milligrams of copper to balance it because you can make yourself copper deficient with too much zinc. And also take selenium. But selenium, you don't, your total intake shouldn't be more than 800 micrograms a day because it gets toxic at higher levels. It's a good anti-cancer drug for prostate cancer, though, and I try to remember to tell my men with family histories of prostate cancer to take some selenium. But you've got to look at your diet. If you love Brazil nuts, for example, you might be getting too much uh, too much selenium if you're not careful. For that type of thing, I use something called a, a website called myfooddata.com. Excellent uh, website. It will give you the uh, selenium content of common of the common foods, and you can calculate your intake and make sure that you stay at or below that 800 microgram threshold. Let's go to our first email. This from Diane in Santa Barbara. Uh, Very mysterious weight loss is the topic. Dear Dr. Don, since last March, I've gone from 120 pounds to 88 pounds. I've had two blood tests, a mammogram, an MRI, a CT, a PET scan, three stool samples, all normal. I'll be 81 in November, and I take no prescriptive medications, have all my marbles, and still keep a few clients as my in my profession uh, for 32 years as a gardener. My MD says that this weight loss is an indicator of longevity, but be that as it may, I don't care to live a long life as a skinny stick. What's the deal? Diane a.k.a. the Queen of Green. Well, Diane, uh, your doctors have done the right thing. Let me start off right out of the top. When With that story, the first thing you're going to do is look for cancer. And a negative PET scan, MRI and CT, all normal, pretty much tells me that you don't have any hypermetabolic cells in your body. And cancers are hypermetabolic. They are little piggies. They will scarf down that radioactive glucose that you give for the PET scan and light up like a Christmas tree. So if nothing's lighting up, we know that is an issue. Now, you haven't mentioned if your food intake is is good, if you have changed the amount you're eating. And obviously, one of the things that can happen as we age is that our sense of smell declines, uh, and our drives decline. So less sense of smell could be a factor in appetite, and thirst and hunger get blunter as we age. Even if the rest of our mental capacities remain good, thirst and hunger get less. So my first question, which unfortunately you didn't answer, would be food diary, calorie count. Let's, you know, so you've done all this stuff, probably going to a nutritionist with a very good food diary, exactly what you eat, measured uh, or weighed so that they can calculate your calorie count and see whether or not that seems okay. Looking at things like your body temperature could tell us whether or not your uh, whether or not your metabolism has dropped for some reason. And while your doctor's right that being thin in old age can be uh, a sign of longevity. It's really more about not eating a lot that's associated with longevity. If you're eating a lot and you and you're losing weight, or you're eating what you always w- ate when you weighed 120, and you're losing weight, something's probably wrong with your absorption. And there's a, a lot of possibilities. One of the first simple tests to do is let's postulate that your pancreas has gotten old. It's not producing as many enzymes to break down your food. This is very plausible. You may not, you can't really measure that well, although there are blood tests, excuse me, stool tests that will measure some of the pancreatic enzymes. A lot of them are broken down by your gut bacteria or reabsorbed, and so it can be a little bit tricky to figure out what's going on. Uh, I would look at levels of fat-soluble vitamins. These can be tested in your blood, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E. And if any or all of those are low, then that point or low normal, that would point us in the direction 
of maybe a problem with absorbing them. And if it's typically what I will do if I can't tell or it's sort of ambiguous is I'll put the person on high doses of fat-soluble vitamins for a week and then I'll repeat the blood test and see if the levels have bumped because if they aren't able to absorb what's coming in through the diet, they aren't probably going to be able to absorb what's coming through in the form of vitamins. And so that's my clue that I need to give this person extra pancreatic enzymes. So that might be a thing. Uh, You said that you'd had stool tests. You didn't tell me whether they had looked for parasites. And while that's... uh, it, and also which lab did it because a, this is a very error-prone test. It's, you know, to put it bluntly, you're smearing poop on a thin layer on a slide and looking for tiny little eggs. It's easy to miss them. And so, and not all of these bugs are laying eggs at the same time. That's why that you do three over three days. But even then, the error rate on this is easily 10, 15, some labs probably as much as 25%. But DNA testing doesn't have that problem. And I'm betting that your doctors did not do parasite DNA testing on your stool and looking at your microbiome, which may have shifted substantially. Did you know, for example, that your microbiome can helps, helps you digest uh, your food? There's a type of species called Firmicutes. It's a whole um, family of bacteria. And they help your body break down fat. So if you have lost those. Maybe you were maybe you were treated with antibiotics and you messed up your microbiome, killed off your firmicutes, and now you don't have those helpers breaking down some of what you eat. Another thing is type one diabetes. You might have normal blood sugar, but it'd be worthwhile looking at a C peptide and making sure that you're putting out adequate amounts of insulin. Because if you can't get the glucose into the cells, then you may you may not be able uh, if you're not if you're not making enough insulin you're not going to get the glucose into the cells you're not going to be able to maintain the cells you could also have a silent thyroiditis and this is something that older people can have a bad pneumonia and they won't run a fever uh, or they may not even cough or they may have an uh, hyperactive thyroid and not have an elevated heart rate and not feel jittery, but they've but they're still hypermetabolic and losing weight for that reason. So, if you want to explore this further, you can reach out to me. I do. I am able in the state of California to do telemedicine visits. But if you like your doctors and your doctors are willing to think outside the box, that's too uh, you know too necessary but not sufficient conditions for you to go forward locally. By all means, I've given you some ideas. Let's move on to something related to the last email a little bit. Uh, This was a meta-analysis, which means it looks at a large number of studies, in this case, 22 randomized trials, in which they were using a particular type of antihypertensive drug, and comparing it with placebo or comparing it with another type of antihypertensive drug. And uh, this was looking at blood pressure, but they went back and they went through the trials because there have been some some drug therapy trials that suggested that angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, uh, ACE blockers, and angiotensin receptor blockers, which are called ARBs, uh, valsartan would be, and lisinopril would be... Uh, respectively lisinopril is an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, and, and, and valsartan is an uh, angiotensin receptor blockade, uh, blocker. Rather. These might have lower risk for new-onset diabetes and that diuretics and beta blockers might raise the risk. So this study went back and did a look back, and what they found uh, with respect to the ARBs and the ACE inhibitors was that lowering the blood pressure actually, even by as little as five points, actually reduced the risk for type 2 diabetes during a follow-up that averaged five years. So it reduced the risk of getting diabetes by a little over 10% in 
over that time. And the uh, ACE inhibitors and the ARBs were the ones that had the biggest benefit. And meanwhile, the beta blockers actually raised the risk of getting diabetes. Uh, so the hazard, the risk ratio was one and a half times for beta blockers. Uh, while calcium channel blockers, that would be like your verapamil, your diltiazem, those didn't actually do anything one way or another. So no one would have really expected that finding. And it's sort of backwards. I mean, we associate diabetes and uh, hypertension, but we usually think of them as entities that develop separately. But when you really stop and think about it, one of the reasons that people with diabetes get cardiovascular disease is because their blood sugar is high, and some of that blood sugar actually interacts with the proteins of the blood vessel wall, over time making the blood vessel wall stiffer and filling up the small vessels in ways that lead to the blindness that we associate with diabetes and also the neuropathy. However, maybe that maybe that excess glucose in the large vessels is actually impairing their ability to make nitric oxide or respond to nitric oxide by relaxation. So maybe diabetes causes hypertension a little bit. And so lowering the blood pressure lowers the risk of diabetes. That's weird. It's backwards. I don't understand it, and I don't think the researchers do. And well, it'll be interesting to see what uh, comes out of that, but I'm intrigued. Now, at the top of the hour, I mentioned weaponizing science, weaponizing pseudoscience for political gain. Over the weekend, Florida's Surgeon General recommended against COVID-19 mRNA vaccines for men aged 18 to 39 based on an analysis of state data. Many experts are calling this deeply flawed the Florida Surgeon General, Joseph Lepetto, a political appointee, announced that men in this age group, quote, have an increased risk of cardiac-related death and linked to guidance recommending against these vaccines in this group. That guidance links out to this unpublished document. It's an analysis of state data. It's not signed by the authors, which is just weird. And it purports to be a case control series looking at individuals vaccinated against COVID-19. And it reported an 84% increase in the relative incidence of cardiac-related deaths in men's age 18 to 39 within 28 days of mRNA vaccination when compared with the same group over a 25-week period. So in other words, an increased hit rate of cardiac-related death between these two groups, there was no difference in the in the overall death rate. So guys got vaccinated. They were watched for the first 28 days, scored if they had a cardiac-related death, scored as a positive. Then over the next 25 weeks, they were also scored for cardiac death. This is a weird kind of science to do. Uh, what's interesting to me is that there was no difference in all-cause mortality, which means that the data is flawed, is the only way I can put it. Uh, the paper was published on the Florida website. It wasn't published anywhere else. Not only is it not peer-reviewed, it didn't actually make it into a medical journal. And one very geeky person, Kristen Panthagani of Yale University, went through the cardiac-related ICD codes, in other words, the way the diseases were coded, and noticed that certain diagnoses, such as ischemic heart disease, weren't included in the cost, but cardiac arrest was. So there's lots of times when people die, and I, as the doctor, put cardiac arrest on the death certificate because there's a lot of things that cause cardiac arrest, including, you know, including a successful suicide. Cardiac arrest means the heart has stopped. Did it stop because you jumped off of a bridge uh, and landed on cement? Well, your heart definitely stopped at the moment of impact, but that wasn't really the cause of your death. You you probably would want to list suicidal depression as the actual cause of that death. Death certificates have multiple places, 
room for at least three or four diagnoses because the authorities quite accurately, quite appropriately are trying to figure out not only what killed the person proximately, but what are the things that might be more treatable that led up to that death. The code for myocarditis, for example, was included. Basically, they messed with the data. They went cherry-picking, and they published this, and it's just pitifully bad in terms of what anyone with a modicum of of knowledge of science would do. So please, Florida, um, I know I know your your guys running for president, but please stop farting around with the pseudoscience. All right, if especially if you want to win, because anybody with a brain can see through it, and anybody who can't see through this is going to be voting for you anyway, probably. So the other call out shout out that I wanted to do was basically the U.S. Department of Agriculture is not enforcing its standards. Now I'm I, I'm very into organic food. I I really don't want to eat any pesticides I can avoid eating. I don't want to eat any hormones that I can avoid eating. I think that the latter in particular contribute to diabetes, and I think the former have strong evidence that they contribute to cancer and renal failure. So thank you very much. I'll I'll have mine without the uh, additives. So when I buy organic eggs, I often see that these are cage-free grass-fed, cage-free, and I looked. I came across this article, and I, I looked into it, and cage-free can mean not much, really. European regulations call for 43 square feet of land per bird, walking around room for the bird, in other words, and also plenty of soil, which means plenty of bugs. Uh, Organic Valley, which is probably one of the better middlemen for distribution of organic eggs, requires farmers to provide five square feet. Uh, Actually, the regulations only require uh, one or two square feet outdoors for the chickens. And that's not very much. And they're allowed to cover half of that with concrete or gravel. So that isn't exactly stuff you're going to be digging around and pulling insects out of. And uh, about half of all organic eggs Basically, what's organic is not the chicken's life experience, but the absence of the attitudes. Well, organic eggs that are actually grown in a enriched soil, enriched environment, do have more micronutrients than conventional eggs because they have three times more omega-3 fatty acids, 40% more vitamin A, and twice as much vitamin E, those fat solubles again. But if it's raised in a concentrated animal feeding operation. About half of all organic eggs do qualify to be called organic, even though they're basically grown industrially. And the chickens rarely venture outside because they're in multiple layers. They're mainly being fed uh, corn and soy, but at least it's organic corn, corn and soy. But if you're hoping for transformed bug proteins uh, and more micronutrients, forget it. Instead, you may want to skip to using uh, actual bugs and the uh, the new bug food industry is really growing. I had some wonderful uh, chocolate chip cookies a few months ago that were from a kit I bought on uh, at a mail order place that normally sells uh, left wing t shirts and buttons, but they were selling cricket meal. Uh, chocolate chip cookies. And you know what? They weren't bad. I must say I will uh, buy them again, although I'm not, I don't bake cookies that often. I now have an excuse because I am very, very interested in the emerging bug food technology as we encounter more and more crazy weather and increases in carbon. We're going to see real problems with our food chain and we're all going to have to learn how to eat differently. And this is a plant-based diet is unfortunately for the environment. People who eat a mainly plant-based diet actually live longer. Uh, It's good for the environment. If you take out the cows, that's of course, the longer the humans live, the more pollution you, you have to support them. Not that I not a speciesist myself. I'd like to see uh, humans that are currently existing, stay alive and happy for as long as possible. So moving on to people and staying alive, let's talk about 
the smell of burnt tires on the air. This is just a quickie. Uh, we're having a stink bug party here in the United States. Uh, they just started it about 20 years ago, and now the brown marmorated stink bug, which releases a fluid that smells like burnt tires, has been found in 46 states and is now classified as a uh, crop pest in 15 of those states. Uh, it's uh, really gone up in the Great Lakes region and parts of California and Idaho, and they badly damage ecosystems. So not only are we going to be dealing with Zika and dengue and malaria, but we're going to be dealing with stink bugs. Definitely time to take the foot off the gas. And uh, I hope that uh, people are getting that finally, and not just down here in California where we're looking at $6 a gallon, but maybe also in the hollowed halls of uh, power where they never have to buy their own gas. Okay, topic change, switching to frozen embryos. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the idea that had been promoted of freezing your embryos when they're young, when you're young, and then waiting until your career, until you're maybe in your 30s and have an established career and an established relationship before thawing them out and having the babies. Sounds like a pipe dream. But there have been plenty of pregnancies with frozen embryos. And a recent study coming out of uh, Scandinavia uh, looked at 4.5 million pregnancies. I will add also that Scandinavia is now reasonably ethnically diverse. Uh, so this isn't just about blonde white people. There'll also be people from all over the planet in this data set. There were 1,800 pregnancies from IVF with frozen embryos and about 7,800 from fresh embryos. And they controlled for the age of the mother and other risk factors. And they found that there was a substantial difference in which uh, number of women got hypertension during their pregnancies. Now, of course, hypertension is dangerous in pregnancy because it can lead to preeclampsia, which can lead to some dire complications, low birth weight, uh, prematurity, and seizures in, for the moms, and sometimes death. So this is not a trivial disease. Uh, they found that 7.4% of the mothers who had a pregnancy with frozen embryos got hypertension. Only 59 of those uh, who had uh, fresh embryos, and 4.3% among women who conceived naturally, which is kind of the background rate of this. When they looked at women who had had both types of children, one naturally and one with IVF, they found that using the frozen embryo was linked to a doubling in the risk of high blood pressure. Now, I'm not sure if they controlled for age in the woman who had the two pregnancies. I think probably... I'm I'm guessing probably not because the second pregnancy being IVF I think would be more likely than the first pregnancy being IVF. But it raises the issue of what's going on and I think placental formation as we've linked uh, subtle abnormalities in the epi- in the epigenetics of the placenta to preeclampsia already. I think the epigenetics of being frozen uh, probably does affect the DNA in a way that changes the methylation pattern. So that would be something now that we've, and I'm just going to riff for a second on how science works. Somebody does an epidemiology study like this. That's interesting. Now you start asking yourself, well, why would that be? And you try to come up with testable hypothesis. In the case of this one, first thing I'd think about would be, well, what about epigenetics? We can measure cytosine methylation. That's easy to check. We can look at the tissue from the placenta of these pregnancies. That'd be where I would look and look for the, look for a difference in the methylation. I also really think, and I'm, I don't know if they controlled for the age of the father here, but I think that's a big factor when you're looking at placental abnormalities, because interestingly enough, the placenta carries the father's epigenetic changes, 
whereas the fetus carries mostly the mother's epigenetic uh, changes. And just to make things even more interesting, uh, this other study looked at embryos made from DNA from three people, uh, and this first study shows that they develop normally. Now, one of these babies was born in 2016 in Mexico, and that was kind of one of those Wild West sort of uh, bits of science. And now people in China and the United States are working on doing the first comprehensive study, and it does seem that these embryos do develop normally. Now, why would you want to do this? Well, it's because some women have defects in their mitochondria, the parts of the cells that make energy, and the mitochondria come from the egg. So this is how we do the, this is how we found Eve, you know, the first mother, and that she was African because we used mitochondrial DNA and looked at how that mutated over time, and we're able to trace back the lineages because the, the DNA from the mitochondria only comes from the mom. You don't have any from the father messing up the picture. And children inherit all of their mitochondria from their mother. Now, if their mother has bad mitochondria, these children uh, may not be viable pregnancies or they may suffer birth defects. The technique that is used for mitochondrial replacement is spindle transfer. So basically, you take the nuclear DNA from the egg of a woman with faulty mitochondria, and you take a donor egg with healthy mitochondria, take out that nuclear DNA, and substitute it from the woman with the faulty mitochondria, and then you fertilize the egg and implant it. And a little bit of the bad mitochondria gets through you can't uh, from the uh, with the nucleus, but not a lot. Ninety five percent of it is good mitochondria, and so they did this multiple times, and they let the set the embryos develop for up to a week after fertilization, and then they they looked at the five-day-old blastocysts, and they looked at gene expression, gene transcription, all of the things that you'd be interested in. The problem with what they did in 2016 is that they got lucky. There were there are lots of culls in the animal studies where it didn't work out well, and you have an animal with multiple birth defects or a late pregnancy demise. We don't want to be doing that in humans we don't want to be learning how to do it. And nowadays, we've gotten to the point where we can research these things in a much better way. So maybe I'll talk to you more next week about mitochondrial diseases, because I think it's probably a new topic for most of us. But for now, our time is up. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at Ask Dr. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.